I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Hi, this is in Good Head Bar in South Hero, Vermont, on the shore of Lake Champlain. It's just about midnight. The moon is rising up through the trees, and there's still a few constellations. You can see stars. It's really clear night. It's the first time in a few nights that it's really clear. The geese have just just come back, so you can hear them here and there. But otherwise, it's really quiet. It's beautiful, serene. That was Ingrid Hedbor in South Hero, Vermont. And this is Casey Rodriguez in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I recently started a night shift job at a retail place, stacking shelves. It's about 3 a.m. I'm sitting in a strip mall parking lot, and it's cold. Uh, Air's nice and crisp, but sound travels pretty far. I hear the occasional passing truck or car on I-30, I-376. When it quiets down, I can hear the uh, whirring of machines from the supermarket. Not much wildlife here. It is the middle of March. With the strip mall parking lot lights never turning off, it's kind of hard to ever get a glimpse of stars. We recently switched to new LED lights, which are more power efficient, but they really block out the stars. And it's a shame. I noticed it first when I would visit family that there's just so much else out there that I typically don't see. Be it at work or my apartment, it's it's just blocked for miles around that you can't see. I can actually tell the direction that the downtown area is because the sky is brighter on one horizon. Not entirely, because it's kind of bright all around. It's also noisy. Just before recording this, I got interrupted by a train passing by. I thought it was clear, and a garbage truck came barreling past. It's convenient living in the city, but you sacrificed a lot, I've learned. And here's Jenny Ward in Greenville, Maine. I'm walking out onto the frozen surface of a pond that's located in northern Maine. This place where I'm at right now was recently protected by the Appalachian Mountain Club as its Maine Woods International Dark Sky Park. And tonight is an amazing night to be outside. There are no clouds. It is well into night. And the stars are amazing. I look around me and they start on one side of me and they go to the other and front and back. It's like, it's like I'm not under them. It's like I'm in them. The stars are literally dripping from the sky and they are so dense. Some of the familiar constellations 
and stars that are familiar to me, I'm having trouble picking out because all of the stars are so bright. It is very quiet and still. Winter still has a pretty strong grasp on this region. But things are starting to change. And you can see that in the stars as they start to shift from winter sky to summer sky. It's a great night to be out. Yuan Eklov joins us now, and he's in Ulrisaham, Sweden. And Yuan, what is nighttime like where you are? Um, the, well, it, it depends on the on the year. Uh, as living in Scandinavia, we have these very long nights during the winter, but not as long as uh, in summer. But where I live in a bit far, a bit outside a smaller town, I can I can relate to uh, the last person speaking here, uh, watching the stars. It's not as good as that, but still I can see the Milky Way and I can just stand outside in my garden sometimes and just feeling a bit small and insignificant under this, this sky that just goes on. Hmm. Well, you... Uh research bats, and I believe you're a professor at Stockholm University as well, and you've written this new book, which has really captivated my mind. It's called The Darkness Manifesto on Light Pollution, Night Ecology, and the Ancient Rhythms that Sustain Life. So, Yuan, why does darkness need a manifesto now? Um, well, well, first, uh, I'm I'm very often mixed up with this uh, guy in Stockholm, which has <laughs> he has the same name as me, but uh, he's a marine biologist. Oh, okay. uh, I'm, I'm a batsologist from from Gothenburg, so okay. I, I did my research in Gothenburg. I'm just to clarify that he emailed me the other day and said, "Hey, everybody, calls me." Uh, uh, but about the book, um, I've, I've been doing research on bats for 25 years and being out a lot uh, during the evenings and uh, a few years ago we realized that well, the bats often live in, in churches, at, at least here in, in Sweden. And in the 90s all the churches started to use floodlights to, well we have some hundreds or even thousand year old church buildings and of course the municipality want to, to shoo off these buildings and so they put floodlights on them, and we, we started to investigate what happens to the bats. And it turned out they they either move or they just starve to death. So in thirty years' time, half of the bats living in churches is, is actually gone. And when realizing that, I, I thought that well, this is not just about bats. It's it's not about killing bats. It's about killing the night, and that must mean something. And to animals, to plants, and even to ourselves. Hmm. So that's when I started to to write a book about well, darkness. Yeah. So the bats in the in the Swedish churches, the it's not that they moved somewhere else. It's just their their overall populations did drop pre- precipitously. Is that what you're saying? 
Yes. Um, we don't know for sure that they just didn't move anywhere else, but there are similar studies in England suggesting that these bats actually stay put as long as they can. And as the night gets shorter and shorter, they eventually starve to death. Huh. And it didn't um, have to do, you know, every time we talk about bats, I always think about uh, white nose disease, right? Would, did that play a role here or was the light the really the, the main issue? The light is the issue. Okay. Uh, the white nose syndrome is a huge thing in, in America, but in Europe, it, it's not the same problem. Perhaps it, it comes from here. So the bats are immune in Europe. Mm, mm. Okay. So we'll talk more about um, animals and um, how keenly they rely on darkness. But I did want, want to hear from you a little bit, um, Yuan, about humans and what you think we humans lose out on um, as our world becomes ever more uh, illuminated. It, it, do we miss out on something? Uh, we do. Uh, as we heard uh, from, from the voices in the beginning here, um, it was like very slow speaking, whispering voices um, trying to uh, experience the night. And well, in one case, there was a lot of stars, but in another case, he, he was complaining about the, the LED light just blocking everything. And there is something about the night sky that we Perhaps we don't realize that we, we miss it every day, but if we think about it, we we want to see these stars. There are so many, there are just one-fifth of the population, population can actually see the Milky Way nowadays. And in somehow this connects us to history and to our forefathers seeing the same stars and things like that. But that, that is, of course, very hard to measure. It's just a feeling of missing out. Mm -hmm. There are so many other things with the darkness that we actually need. Yes, and so, but, but I, I, I'm, I didn't realize that only one fifth of human beings on Earth right now um, are able to see the Milky Way. Is that what you said? Yeah, at, at least in America and in, in Europe. Oh, okay, in the United States and Europe as well. Okay, and so, so they may people may live their entire lives, not having seen the night sky as it is without interference from uh, human-created illumination. Yeah, th there is uh, this story about the uh, when the electric lights went out in Los Angeles <laughs> a few years ago that the people started to call the police because they, there were some weird, weird lights in the sky. It turned out to be the Milky Way. Um, I, first, I, I didn't think that was really true. It was a bit exaggerated. But now, just the other day, uh, I heard that people were calling in, asking about when, when Jupiter and Mars were very close together on the sky. Mm -hmm. So even here, people were actually calling the police, wondering, what is this? Are they drones? <sighs> So there is something about this that we, we, we're so unfamiliar with the night sky nowadays. So yeah. we think it must be something weird going on. 
Well, Yuan Eklov joins us today. He's the author of a new book called The Darkness Manifesto on light pollution, night ecology, and the ancient rhythms that sustain life. We'll have much more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're speaking with Yuan Eklov. He's a bat researcher and author of the new book, The Darkness Manifesto, on light pollution, night ecology, and the ancient rhythms that sustain life. Now, about those ancient rhythms, uh, human-caused light pollution uh, around the world not only affects terrestrial species, it affects aquatic species as well. And to that point, we spoke with Emily Fobert, who's a research fellow at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And she studies how humans impact underwater ecosystems, especially when it comes to artificial light. And her work was inspired by a research trip she took in 2017. I went to French Polynesia with a colleague and it's a relatively remote island, but there's all these hotels with you know, overwater bungalows and lights shining right down on the reef. Some of them even have, you know, the glass floors in the bungalows with the lights directed onto the reef below so the tourists can look at the fish at night. And, you know, I've heard that there's light, there's impacts of light pollution on you know, a lot of terrestrial animals and humans, for sure. So just seeing all that light pollution in the marine environment made me realize that it's something we haven't been looking at, but it's probably an issue there as well. So back at the lab, Emily decided to see whether light pollution had an impact on a specific underwater species, clownfish, those orange and white fish that make their homes in anemones on coral reefs. So I had a bunch of clownfish in the lab. Ten breeding pairs of clownfish, so a female and a male, each in their own aquarium. Kept track of how many eggs they were laying, how frequently they were laying them. And then I put lights on half of them. So half of them were my controls, so they still experienced 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of complete darkness. Um, and then the other half had 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours where they were exposed to a dim light at night. And that's kind of equivalent to what you might expect from 
a source of light or marine infrastructure, so on a pier or uh, over water hotel that might have lights on it shining downwards. And then I monitored how many of the eggs actually hatched in both the control and the light conditions. So what I found is when the fish had 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of, of darkness at night, we had about 80% hatch success. So 80% of the eggs hatched. It's pretty normal to have high mortality in the early um, life stages of fish because they have thousands of eggs. But then when I put the, the lights on at night, so that when they're exposed to low levels of light at night, zero percent of the eggs hatched. So none of them hatched. Pretty stark results. So I removed the lights and I continued to monitor them for another couple months. And essentially as soon as I removed the lights, the next batch of eggs from the same fish would hatch. So 80% hatch rate again. So it was very clearly the light that was inhibiting that hatching process. A lot of coral reef fish eggs actually hatch a couple hours after sunset. Translucent larvae are not very visible at night. Um, there's not as many predators around, so they hatch. They get off the reef really quickly in the cover of darkness. Clownfish, most fish, most organisms on Earth need darkness for various reasons. Um, but there's still not a ton of research done on light pollution in the marine environment. So yeah, there's a lot of questions still out there, but no doubt that animals need darkness. Whenever anyone asks me what I do, and I, I, I mention, you know, light pollution, fish, and they're just like, what? Light pollution underwater? Really? Like, people don't get that you know, light travels through water still. And everything that we do on land, on the coast, that's, that's impacting everything underwater. Emily Fobert is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Now, Yuan Eklov, um, those clownfish are just one of many marine species that uh, require a difference between day and night to survive. And this was one of the surprising things I found in your book, that, for example, um, the planet's most massive migration um, happens every single day, I should say every single night, in the oceans, and it requires darkness. And this is the, ma the vertical migration of zooplankton in the seas? Uh, yeah, um, but before we go into that, uh, I, I just want to correct myself. I, I think I was talking about Mars and Jupiter before, and I meant Venus and Jupiter. I, I don't want you to get any angry emails from astronomers. I'm so. sure we will. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now we clear that out. Um, yeah, uh, the the impact of light pollution on, on marine animals, and uh, there was something that surprised me as well uh, when I started to research this and as you say every night a lot of plankton migrate from the depths up to 
the surface waters in protection of darkness. Uh, and when the morning comes, they, they migrate down again uh, to, to avoid the light. And this is all due to predation. Just in the case with the, just as in the case with the, the clownfish. And those those plankton are so important, right? Because just to point out why they matter, they are basically the the foundation of much of the ocean's food webs, right? And so, therefore, if there's a long-term negative impact to zooplankton in the world's oceans, that is going to reverberate across. Uh, the entire marine ecosystem. So one sort of hidden example there, you have many other uh, examples of of animals who, that behave differently when they lose their access to the darkness in which they evolved. For example, can you tell us more about, there's, um, I can't remember which species is it, of, of moths that emit a particular pheromone at night, but then when they lose the darkness, that pheromone changes, and so therefore... It interferes with their their mating ability. Yeah, um, uh, it was a study about cabbage moths, but in in general, most moths behave in similar ways. Um, uh, to to attract the opposite sex, they they uh, they use pheromones like scents, and they can detect a single molecule from from miles away to to find a partner, and Timing is everything in, in nature, and these moths they want to uh, that that the pheromones are triggered when it's the safest time to be out. That is, an hour or two after after sunset. And if if uh, the sun never sets, or if we hide the sunset with artificial light, we we. We kind of we fool the animals that uh, it's still daylight out. The pheromones will never be triggered, or, as you say, the composition of uh, the pheromones will, will be actually different. So uh, the males will never find the females, and the opposite. And there was a Swiss study that looked at the impact of, I guess the the subsequent reduction in the moth population if they can't um, actually mate due to losing that the darkness and the pheromones. What did that Swiss study find? Uh, they found that well, they compared uh, different meadows. Uh, half of these were dark in natural darkness and the other half was lit by streetlights or an equivalent to streetlights. And they just counted how many flowers are visited by moths every night, how many flowers are pollinated. And it turned out that on the meadows lit by, by streetlight, it was 60% fewer flowers that were pollinated. So the polline pollination frequency dropped by 60% just due to the lighting. Mm. So how common is this? Um, reduction in population or even just sort of species-level confusion uh, amongst animals that have evolved in the darkness when human beings around them turn on the lights at night? Uh, this is probably very common. Uh, we haven't studied this enough yet. I mean, nobody ever talked about light pollution a few years ago. Even though astronomers have been talking about it for a while, biologists and 
physiologist, neurologist, mm. whatever, haven't studied this until the last decade or so. And every animal group or every organism group we, we study, we find something new about this. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those organisms is human beings, right, <laughs> Yuan? Oh, yeah. What are yeah. we actually doing to our own bodies when our uh, the amount of absolute darkness that we uh, experience it goes down? Um, what we do is that, uh, as any other animal, we, we have uh, we have a cycle, we have a, a rhythm. We're active during the day and we sleep during the night, and for the body to to come to rest and relax, we, we need our sleep hormone, the melatonin. And that is something that is triggered by darkness. And that makes us, uh, all the muscles are resting, uh, our body temperature drops, and a lot of things happen in your body uh, to, to make sure your immune system works correctly. And if we have the lights on for too long, or if we if, if it never gets dark, this melatonin never really isn't triggered properly. So, first of all, we we have a hard time to sleep, and mm. um, but this hormone system also triggers other hormone systems. Uh, for example, making us hungry in the middle of the night, which, which we're not supposed to. And there are all sorts of things happening, which, well, we have been starting to, to see um, a link between different diseases and uh, artificial light, actually. One of them being obesity, right? Because uh, it seems like there is some, a pretty strong link between not having a, a uninterrupted sleep and obesity. Yeah, and... Um, and even diabetes, which mm. is also a connection to this. Mm. And what about just, I think, one of the most obvious differences between uh, animals that dwell in the day versus those that dwell in the night is just vision. Um, I don't necessarily think human beings were ever really evolved to be um, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant in terms of seeing things at night. But have we begun to change our capacity for, for night vision, especially in the cities where, I mean, you can literally go 24 hours um, and never experience darkness? Uh, yeah, well, you, you actually need half an hour or even more to, to fully use your night vision. Uh, in your eyes, you have you have rods and cones, and uh, the cones are they, they see in color, and the rods are very sensitive to light. And to to shift to night vision, you need to use your uh, rods, and but it takes a while. And if you have lived in in the city your whole life, you probably never never ever experienced that. I mean, if you if you're out in the middle of the night and and there is a full moon. You, you would probably realize that it's quite bright and you can do stuff, you can read a book or whatever just by the moonlight. Mm. But the moment you look at your cell phone or turn a light on, you will erase this night vision in an instant. Mm. Hmm. Do we know if that's having sort of long-term impacts on our on our night vision? Uh, I 
I think there are a few studies that actually suggest that we are slowly losing our ability. Uh, I'm not sure if this is true yet, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, if we, if we never use it, we will eventually lose it as well. Hmm. We've got about a minute before our next break, Yuan, but... You know, I, I note that not only do you have a lot of science uh, and, and natural observations in your book, but there's a sort of almost like a, a moral outcry in the book about losing darkness. What do you think about that? Um, it's it's like everything uh, with conservation and biodiversity and what, what, what we humans do to nature. It, it's just just another thing we uh like in the cities for example we we cut down forests we we have asphalt instead of grass and we we chase all the animals away and now we're even killing the night it's we can't go any further than that Well, we're going to talk more about um, what we all lose when we lose the darkness and we'll do so after the break but I want to Uh, use some of the thoughts and experiences of our listeners to take us to that break because we received uh, so many uh, responses you on when we said we were going to be doing this show with you. So let's hear from a few more people uh, who took out their phones at night and described to us what they see where they live. Here's Allison Ritrovado in Lyme, Connecticut, Susie Ryman-Sider in Steuben, Maine, and Alice Kerber in Cassopolis, Michigan. Right now there's a great horned owl calling on the other side of the lake. And the night sky is so bright. I see Orion's Belt, the Seven Sisters, the Big Dipper. And the air is slightly scented with a fire that someone must have nearby. In the springtime, we have lots of peepers that are really loud. And we can hear whippoorwills. Um, Sometimes I hear owls and coyotes or dogs, neighboring dogs bark. Outside on my tiny deck after dark. What do I smell? Mm. Because of the snow, it smells like rain. Some nights I hear coyotes. And just this year... The hoot of an owl's mating call. Soon I'll hear peepers. I love the sound of peepers. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. 
Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today Yuan Eklov joins us. He's author of a book called The Darkness Manifesto on light pollution, night ecology, and the ancient rhythms that sustain life. Um, and Yuan, we also heard from a gentleman named Jeff Goins, who's been leading astronomy programs in the southwestern United States for some 30 years. So obviously, as you said earlier, the astronomers have long been attuned to the negative impacts of light pollution. He now works uh, in New Mexico at Capulin Volcano National Monument, which was named a dark sky park by the International Dark Sky Association several years ago. And it's the response that people give him when they come to see his astronomy shows at the Dark Sky Park that really astound him. And here's what he said. The number of times that I have done programs and people have looked at the sky and asked me if that cloud was going to be a problem. And I have to explain that that's our own Milky Way galaxy that they're seeing. When they finally wrap their head around that, that we can go outside in a dark place and look at our own galaxy. It really makes you understand your place in this universe a lot more. You get these moments where your brain suddenly goes, it opens up and you're like one with everything for just an instant, and then you lose it. Now, Yuan, I will admit that I uh, share the romanticist view about the importance of night and darkness. But I also want to note that electrification, really, which is what we're, we're, we're talking about, is the source of all the, the light pollution that's pushing back the dark. It's, it's such a recent uh, uh, development in human history. It's like the blink of an eye, honestly, when you think about it. Um, you, in, you in the book, you take it even beyond sort of a it's bad for the planet argument. And and you talk about light pollution as almost um, a demonstration of humanity's will to power over nature. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, life has been around for three and a half billion years or so. And electrical light has been here for 150 years. So evolutionary wise, this it's really, really new. And Man has always used light to to show off things and to be able to work at night to extend his territories. And uh, I mean, just my my, uh, my great grandfather he he installed electric light in the factory where he worked, and at that time it was that was the most modern thing. But today we we live in a twenty four seven society and. We, we don't even think about the light. We, we just expect it to be there, that we can we expect to be able to borrow a library book at 3 a.m. or go to the gym in the middle of the night. And we, we have gone so far away from where we were, so it's nothing you even think about anymore. Mm. So, I mean, really, you see this as a... a uh, an indictment against industrialized capitalism, it sounds like. 
in in one way. I mean, there there are so many good things about this. I mean, when it comes to safety issues, and we can see what we are doing, and but when we started taking this for granted, and to uh, when people started complaining about this road is too dark because it's not as bright as the other one, and we need to go here, and even though just two people every night use it, there are so many. Uh, I I'm not sure what to say, but the, we have changed the world in so rapidly and so much that we we are not aware. Mm, mm. Well, um, you know, I also think though that the same lights that uh, blast out the stars at night over cities around the world. That same technology and that, that development allows for, you know, lighting of city streets for additional safety. It leads to the kinds of specialized lighting that we need for, um, you know, life-saving surgeries. Just you know, a couple random examples there. So, you know, with that in mind, I wonder if we're being a little too absolutist in our conception of the impact of illumination. And and to this point, I want to quote um, Adam Gopnik, who reviewed your book in The New Yorker. And he said, Undoubtedly, the loss of night to artificial illumination is a loss for diversity in every sense, ecological and experiential. Yet we can wonder if what human beings mainly experience as improvements must in every instance be subordinated to the welfare of the planet, a concept that is itself only available to humans. Essentially, you're saying it's not all that bad. What do you think? Um, th there are so many things we can do. Uh, if we just, uh, if we choose to turn off the lights when, when we don't need them. Uh, for example, if, if you're in your garden having a barbecue, whatever, in the evening, and, and when you go inside and what, watch TV instead, you can just turn off the lights in your garden. Uh, and then you would still have night outside. Uh, if you have a, a bicycle path through a park and the lights are just turned on the moment someone actually uses it uh, and then let, and then we turn off the lights again using timers or motion sensors or something like that, uh, we would sh still have night. And at the same time, we would benefit from, from the lights as we intended to. So there are so many things we, we, that we can do. Uh, we just use the technology that we have. Hmm. Well, uh, I, we talked to someone who is, in fact, doing some of those things that you just talked about, Yuan. This is Keith Kruger. He lives in northern Pinal County in Arizona. And his neighborhood does not have streetlights, which is one of the reasons why he moved there about 20 years ago. When the moon's out, you really see the moon without having to deal with looking at lights. And, uh, of course, you can see the stars much better at night. You do have to pay attention where you're putting your foot because you don't want to step on a, a rattlesnake. Uh, sometimes have Lena go by our house in the back here. You can hear them, 
and, and smell them. They have kind of a pungent smell. Uh, they come by at night. Um, they're pretty cute. They look like uh, pigs. They're kind of more, probably more primitive than pigs. So that's part of what he sees because uh, there are no streetlights in his neighborhood. But nevertheless, Keith has noticed changes in the night sky. Tonight, it's actually pretty cloudy, it's, uh, high, thin clouds. You can still see some stars shining through the clouds, but the clouds are very lit up uh, from Phoenix and Apache Junction and also Florence to the south. When we first moved here, it would be darker on a cloudy night than on a clear night because the clouds were obstructing the stars. And Keith told us that these days, it's actually brighter on those cloudy nights because of the reflected light. I have been participating in the Globe at Night project over the 10, last 10 or 15 years and measuring the, uh, the sky brightness here and noting the magnet, uh, lowest magnitude star you can see, which I would say you used to be able to quite easily see down to uh, six magnitude here. It's uh, probably looking at uh, four and a half, five now. So it's definitely fewer stars than we used to see, but still pretty good here compared to most uh, places people live. So that's Keith Kruger again in Arizona. Now, uh, Yuan, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, some of the the coordinated efforts going around in in different places in the world where people are trying to reduce light pollution? Because as you note in the book, of all the forms of human pollution, it seems that light pollution may be one of the easiest ones to actually solve. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, we could just switch the button and turn off the lights, but... That is something we we will not do, but there are so many other things, like I said before, using timers and motion sensors, and we can direct the light, and we can shield the light off so it's not spreading as much, and uh, things like that. And one of the groups that perhaps uh, it surprised me a bit that uh, light designers really liked my book. Mm. Um, I thought they would be the enemy, but it was rather the opposite uh, because they don't, as they say themselves, they, they don't design light, they design an experience, they design a way for us to see things and experience things and they play around with both light and darkness. Uh, so in the light designer world, there are nowadays so many people working with these questions. And on top of that, we have all uh, the dark sky movement with all the dark sky parks, which are, there are more and more every year. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot in the US, but it's starting to become uh, a bigger thing even in Europe. Mm. Not in Sweden though, <laughs> but <laughs> perhaps that will come as well. Uh, but there are, starting to, uh, it happens a lot in in different areas. A lot of municipalities also, they ask for not just a a light-designed city, but also a dark-designed city to to keep parks dark for the animals. And and that doesn't have to mean that 
we're less safe. We, we just use better lighting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, to that point, uh, we spoke with Zach Thompson. He is with the International Dark Sky Association, or IDA. He's one of their advocates in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, and since he started his uh, darkness advocacy work, he's done some of the things that you talked about, Yuan. He's swapped out his outdoor light fixtures. Uh, and now, they're uh, instead of being on all the time, they are motion activated. And also importantly, they're pointed downward. And it's very helpful because it's where my points of entry are, which is where the light really needs to be anyway. So if something if something triggers it, which is most of the time the wind, your your attention is drawn to where that light is. And I kind of hope that you know, with with well, at least what I do with Ida, it's it's not me just trying to beat this drum and say, here's what you all need to be doing. You're doing it all wrong. Look how I have done it. It's more just casually pass along to some family or friends and say, hey, what do you think of what do you think of my fixtures? Oh, it's kind of nice. Or in fact, I actually had some neighbors ask me about it because they hadn't seen it before. And they were curious about it. And I thought, well, this is what they are and here's what they do. So again, that's Zach Thompson uh, with the International Dark Sky Association. He's in Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, you heard a few minutes earlier from Jeff Goins, who works at the Capulin Volcano National Monument in New Mexico. Again, that has been named a gold-tier dark sky park in 2016. And Jeff told us about um, how quickly things can change uh, when you let the darkness back in. When I first moved here, Uh, got this job. I lived in the park for four months and I walked outside one night and was looking up at the night sky because it was just incredibly dark that night. Great air, just sharp, crisp stars everywhere. And I walked into a tree. Uh, (laughs) I just could not see it. Normally, if if you got to get out in a really dark place, uh, starlight actually provides enough light that you can see you know, trails and things, but this tree was shadowing everything just enough. Uh, it was kind of embarrassing, but it it just kind of showed me how dark it really is out here. That's Jeff Goins again at the Capulin Volcano National Monument in Northeast New Mexico. Um, you, on, you make a really interesting observation towards the end of your book, The Darkness Manifesto. You, you write about how, uh, in a sense, uh, when we... Th- oftentimes think about silence, we think about it only as defined by the absence of sound. And that perhaps we reflexively do something similar when we are thinking about darkness, that we define it just very simply as the absence of light. But it sounds like you're calling for a completely different conception, a completely different definition of darkness, um, not as defined by the absence of something, but rather an experience, a uh, an environment that is a complete whole within itself. Um, yeah, it, yes. Um, it, it would be interesting to look at look at it from the other way. It's uh, I don't have the definition because, well, it's there already. It's the absence of of light. But when you but when you think about it, it's. You can almost, if you're out in such a dark place as was described here earlier, you can almost feel the darkness. It's it surrounds you. It's like having a blanket over your head or something. Uh, so the darkness is out there. Uh, and also, I, I there are so many negative words uh, connected to darkness. 
So it, it's it's hard to to say something positive about it. We have all. I mean, the light is always the good side, and darkness is always the bad side. That's why I started to think about how how can we redefine darkness in a way. I I don't think I had the definition, but it was interesting to just speculate around it. Hmm. We have just a few seconds left, Yuan, uh, and you encourage us to think of darkness perhaps in this way, that when we lose it, then we're losing the magic also that comes with the coming of the light, right? You say life's renewal every morning and every spring loses a little bit of its magic. Just a few seconds for a last thought there, Yuan. Um, I think that everybody I've talked to really likes darkness, uh, even though it's a bit scary, but that's also what makes it interesting and gives us a feeling of awe under the, beneath the stars. So just go out there and experience the darkness. Mm. Well, Yuan Eklov's book is called The Darkness Manifesto on light pollution, night ecology, and the ancient rhythms that sustain life. Thank you so much for joining us today, Yuan. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.